You're listening to On the Same Page, a podcast from the Jefferson Madison Regional Library. Welcome back to a new episode of On the Same Page, a podcast from the Jefferson Madison Regional Library System. I'm Abby, here with my co-host EJ. That's right, I'm EJ. In today's episode, we're sharing how to grow, learn, and connect at all nine branches of JMRL. We also have five fabulous interviews for you. Artists, entrepreneurs, and skilled hobbyists from the Charlottesville area and beyond joined us to discuss the rituals of tea, turning bananas into musical instruments, bookbinding, chess, and tissue paper flowers. And these are just five of the 40 presenters you can find at the annual JMRL How-To Festival, which takes place tomorrow, Saturday, May 6th, from 10 to 1, inside and outside the Central Library in downtown Charlottesville. You can learn 30 things in three hours and have a lot of fun doing it. We hope you'll join us for some or all of the How To Festival tomorrow. You'll have the chance to speak in person with the folks we are interviewing today on the podcast. In addition, tomorrow is also free comic book day. So while you're learning and exploring, you can also pick up a free comic book. After the How-To Festival, here are the other ways you can grow, learn, and connect these next two weeks at JMRL. First, if you've never visited the Bookmobile, be sure to check it out tomorrow, May 6th, at the How-To Festival at Central Library. At Central, celebrate your hero and spend an afternoon painting at the library. On Sunday, May 14th, you and a guest can join us for a step-by-step painting tutorial. We'll be painting matching Highland cows. All supplies are provided, so be sure to register in advance. At Crozet, don't miss the slime-making workshop on Saturday, May 20th at 2 p.m., for grades five through eight. At Gordon, there will be a teen game night on Wednesday, May 17th from 4.30 to 6 p.m. At Green, there is a special book club for grades one through three. Every meeting includes a snack, fun activities, and reading out loud from a new book that participants then get to take home. Next meeting is Monday, May 8th from 3.30 to 4.30 p.m. On Tuesday, May 9th at 5 p.m., the Louisa County Library will be hosting a reception for the opening of the Lions Showcase, featuring senior showcase artwork and other curated pieces by Louisa County High School students. Light refreshments will be provided. At Nelson, don't miss the Teen Advisory Board meeting on Thursday, May 11th at 4 p.m. At Northside on Friday, May 12th at 1 p.m., join a yoga astrology journey where you can align with the stars through the body and gentle movement and yoga practice. At Scottsville, don't miss the All Together Storytime program every Wednesday morning at 10.30 a.m. As always, check the calendar to find more information and to register. Before we dive into our conversations with Michaela, Dave, Adeen, John, and Molly, we have a miniature surprise. 
That's right, listeners. We have a brand new segment for you. Welcome to In 10 Words or Less. In this segment, we'll be explaining, describing, and exploring all sorts of things in just 10 words or less. Today, we're going to keep it bookish and talk about books, but of course, in 10 words or less. So take it away, Abby. Today, in 10 words or less, I'm going to talk about a book I'm currently reading, Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt. Inching along, predictable plot, wistful, earnest feelings, easy to read. Today in 10 words or less, I'm going to talk about a book I just finished, The God of Endings by Jacqueline Holland. Listen to the audiobook narrated by Saskia Marleveld. Colette, reluctant vampire, navigates 1984, running from Chernivog and hunger. Based on your 10 words, I'm not sure if I would read your book because it's about a vampire and I try to steer clear from vampires. Based on my 10 words, would you read my book? Yes, probably I would, although I'm not all that into a predictable plot. I like a plot that keeps me guessing, twists and turns, but I do like something earnest and very easy to read. I'm very into that. And Shelby Von Pelt is great. So I think I would probably pick it up. And the cover is amazing. Listeners, you can play along by sharing your 10 words for the book that you're currently reading. Or if you've read these books that EJ and I are describing, how would your 10 words differ from our 10 words? So let us know by emailing us at podcast at jmrl.org. And now without further ado, we're going to jump right into our community spotlight pieces. Thank you to Michaela, Dave, Adine, John, and Molly for sharing their wisdom and passion with us. The best news is after you enjoy these interviews, there are plenty of ways to connect with these local businesses and organizations. Check our show notes for links. My name is uh, John Texera. I'm actually a part-time chess coach. I was a Albemarle County police officer for over 25 years, and I retired as a captain in 2010. Since then, I've been working with uh, youngsters and uh, young adults in chess. And um, it's interesting that um, I I started playing chess during the Bobby Fischer boom back in 1971-72. And here it is, gosh, 50 plus years later, I'm still playing. I'm I'm getting to coach kids. It's a lot of fun. The game game is a blast. And so how did you get started in chess instruction for kids or just playing in general? When I worked with the police department, I would go into the schools and we do board games and we play chess and, you know, all that type of stuff. And so um, when I retired, I thought, what's a good way to keep my mind going and to also interact with, with young people? Plus, I'd like to see kids get better in the game. And so... Um, that's how I get involved in it. And it's, it's, it's been a great ride. Um, I've had uh, lots of students over the years. And they're just wonderful kids, bright, inquisitive, 
And uh, I've actually had three uh, three students win three state championships. And one student uh, back in December came in third in the country in the section. Oh, gosh. Well, big congratulations to you, too. That's incredible for your students as well. I think it's mostly them. I think I'm just there to help a little bit. <laughs> but, so, but thank you anyways. Of course. What great success. So what are you going to be teaching or instructing at the how-to festival? So how is that going to work? If somebody comes up to your table, what are you going to show them? I'll have a display board with all the pieces. We'll talk a little bit about how the pieces move, what their point value is. The point value is really sort of informal, but it kind of gives you a gauge of how the game is going. But we'll just mostly concentrate on how the pieces move. I'll also, because I can't help myself, I'll talk a little bit about the history of the game, about how it started in India about 1,600 years ago and moved to Persia and then moved through Europe. And and one of the things I always ask them is, you know, in, in the Western game, it was a knight, right? The knight's the only piece that can jump over another piece. But in India, there was no knight. What do you think took the place of a knight in India? I'll give you a hint. In the Disney movies, he flies. Oh, an elephant? Yes, an elephant. <laughs> sure. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because and, and and the same thing with um, as the game was in more of the Middle East, there was no bishop. The bishop came along during uh, the Middle Ages when the church was, you know, uh, at its height. And so I talked a little bit about the history. There was actually the world championship just completed uh, on Sunday with one of the greatest moves ever in, in chess history. Uh, Ding Loren uh, from uh, China won the championship. And, you know, I've heard, I've heard people say it's boring watching chess. If you know what's going on, it's just as exciting as watching the New England Patriots win six Super Bowls. Oh, yeah, definitely. I could definitely see that. I enjoy watching chess. I know a, just a tiny bit, but yeah. I really got into it after. I think a lot of us got into it after Queen's Gambit. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, that miniseries is one of the most accurate depictions of chess I've ever seen on the big screen or the little screen. Oh, well, that's um, great to know because that really yeah, made me fall in love with the game. So I'm happy oh, to hear that. <laughs> yeah, we've had a lot of people uh, at the Charlottesville Chess Club. We've had a lot of people come by and ask us about that and we'll help we'll help, uh, we'll help them learn the game. But it, it's also a coming of age story, right? So it's it's quite, quite a moving uh, show. And in one of the episodes, when she goes back to the orphanage and she goes downstairs and she sees like the big display board that she had that her coach had for her. I started crying. Oh, crying! I was so touched when I saw that. And, and then she tells the reporters, "Make sure you mention you know uh, such and such his name because he was this really cranky old man, which sounds familiar to me. So you know, it's that type of thing." Do you have one cool, interesting story about either a student that you've taught or a game of chess that you've watched or a match that you watch that you'd love to tell our listeners about? I don't know if you realize this. Most people, when I tell the kids this, they go, oh, no way, Mr. Tex. But it is true. There are more moves in a chess game than there are known atoms in the universe or grains of sand in the world. And I looked it up before we talked, just make sure I was double correct, because <laughs> I'm sh- sure you have a lot of smart people out there. And yeah, that's pretty much an accurate uh, 
accurate statement. It's uh, ten, and then a ten, and then there's one hundred and twenty, ten to the hundred twentieth power, or something like that. I'm not good at math, and you don't have to be good at math. Be good at chess. You have to concentrate. You have to calculate. You have to know the consequences of your actions, which is really important for young people. Really important. You have to plan, uh, and you have to be able to deal with losses, losing. I learn more from my losses than I do from my wins. And believe me, I've lost a lot over the years. <laughs> the last thing is how can our listeners get involved with you or benefit from your lessons after the How To Festival is over? The Charlottesville Chess Club meets every Monday night at uh, St. Mark's Lutheran Church at the corner of Alderman and Ivy Roads from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. every Monday night. We've been there over 30 years. Anybody who wants to come from a uh, brand new beginner to grandmasters are welcome. <laughs> and um, it's, uh, it's a good group of people. I've also teach at various schools. Right now I'm teaching at Peabody and Murray Elementary. And I also teach at Virginia Discovery Museum. So that's all fun. And finally, even though I'm, I'm cutting a bit back on it, I also do private lessons one-on-one. So I, I have to throw this one last thing in. <laughs> I turned 65 last year, but um, when I was 64, I would ask the kids, how many squares are there on a chessboard? There are 64 squares. How old was Bobby Fischer when he passed? Bobby Fischer is the greatest American chess player ever. Uh, he was 64. And then the first world champion, Wilhelm Steinitz, was also 64 when he passed. So I said, listen, when I turn 65, we have to have a big party because I, I got to get through this. Is there anything else that you want to share about your love of chess, love of the game with our listeners just before we wrap up here? Uh, it's one of the best things that ever happened to me. And it's, it's been a great journey. When I was a police officer, I actually used a lot of those skill sets and that I learned in the game. When I was a detective lieutenant or when I was working cases, I would be very logical and try to think two and three and four moves ahead. Um, people think you have to be really smart to play chess. It helps, but I also think if you have a passion and you want to have fun, and who doesn't want to have fun? My name is Molly Foster, and I am currently a K through five art teacher at Hollymead Elementary School. And I'm going to be continuing to do that, but I'm also opening an art studio up here in Charlottesville because the need seems very great for families to have a place to come make art. And I've already had a lot of interest. So Foster Art is the name of my art studio, and we will be opening at the end of June, fingers crossed. And it's um, going to be in the Forest Lakes Shopping Center. It will be open for all ages, and we're really excited about that. I have been teaching for 23 years. I was a classroom teacher teaching general education to elementary school students in different parts of the state in Virginia. And I watched a TED talk with Sir Ken Robinson, who definitely inspired me to be using my creativity and my education. So I thought, let's see if I can combine the two. I have a bachelor's in psychology and studio art, and I have a master's in education. So I am getting to use all of my degrees now that I'm teaching art. So it's really exciting. And on Saturday, I'm excited to be showing everybody how to make paper flowers. 
And I also have other cool supplies I'm bringing as well, like fabric and tape and recycled materials as well, things that you could use at home. But also I'll have little kits put together for all different ages and abilities of flower making. Thank you so much for that. What sparked you to take the leap to add on the foster art element to your career? What jump-started that idea and how did you decide to take the plunge? That's a good question. So I have been involved in this Holly Mead community for a while and now I've been here for 12 years. And when I first started teaching art, I just had so many parents and families asking me if I knew where art classes could be taken after school privately or summer camps. And I was not aware of any at the time. There was probably some at McGuffey and Parks and Rec, but I just decided, well, I guess the need is here. I originally was renting spaces either in the school building here or in churches, offering summer camps for the last six years or so. And during COVID, we had to move over to kits for the summer. But then the following summer, we we were able to open back up again. But I was more of a traveling art teacher at the time. And so I took the leap this year to open the art studio because I didn't want to have any regrets. (laughs) I thought if I never try it. I'll never know. And I've only gotten really great positive feedback from the community here at Hollymead and beyond. So I'm really excited to see uh, how foster art's going to grow and all the people that will be joining me and making art. That's awesome. It sounds like a really great journey. And we're really excited that you saw that need and did something about it. And we both are really into art and crafts and things like that. So we're really, really excited um, to see Thanks. where that goes. Um, So do you have one really interesting or cool story that you'd like to tell about a summer camp that you've done or something in the community that you'd like to share with our listeners? Just more about getting to the heart of crafting in town in Charlottesville here. Sure. I'm thinking of two different thoughts that came up while you were asking me that question. One was there was one summer where I brought just a bunch of recycled materials I had been collecting in my garage. And my husband was very grateful when I brought all of it out of the garage and into the art studio space that I was renting at the time in the church to be able to offer it to the kids. And I would have the morning time was more structured. And in the afternoon, it was more of a open process-based work time. So the children in this group were K through five, and they just kind of came together and they built a huge, I guess you would call it a community. It was almost like an apartment building out of cardboard boxes, complete with all these tiny miniature furniture. They had restaurants, they had libraries, they had everything. And it was all miniature and made completely out of supplies that were recycled or going to be, you know, thrown away. But they turned it into this amazing um, creation and all came together to all ages. So it was really magical to watch that come together with just kind of me guiding and helping with attaching things here and there, but it was all on them to come up with that. And I'm huge into process-based art, which is more like where you offer children supplies and maybe an idea or an inspiration, and then they create their own ideas that come to life. And then the other thing that came to mind was two years ago, it was actually during um, our time where we were doing art classes online, 
I wanted the students to get engaged a little bit in the community, but not necessarily have to be indoors. So I encouraged them to go check out all the murals in Charlottesville with their families. So they checked out all these different murals and I coordinated with the Charlottesville Mural Project and Alan is over there and we collaborated and had the students, they the fourth and fifth grade students designed their own murals based on Charlottesville's community. And then they voted on the top three murals and we combined those three together and we worked with a local author and illustrator as well. And he did the outline. So took all the kids artwork, put it together into this awesome outline, which then students came into the courtyard that spring and they hadn't been in school in over a year, but they painted the mural out in the courtyard. And now the mural is up in Hollymead. And it's beautiful. Wow. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really lovely. I love the murals all over Charlottesville. I'm a relatively new. I've only been here about a year. So I'm a new transplant. And that's one of the first things I noticed is just like all the art everywhere. We would love to know as well how listeners can get involved with foster art after the how-to festival. If you want to talk a little bit more about what you'll be offering specifically or generally, I will be located in Foster Art will be located in the Forest Lakes Shopping Center across from Target. We are going to be offering preschool and homeschool classes during the day in the afternoons. And that also will be more process-based. We're going to have a plexiglass wall that kids can paint on and, and interact with in different ways and some fun things like that. And then I'll be offering after school elementary clubs and they will be running for six weeks at a time, and they will have a different focus each each six weeks. So it might be six weeks of drawing, six weeks of painting. Um, I will have a kiln, so we'll have clay. Um, we will be offering different mediums, and sometimes it might be a focus on animals, or it might be a focus on comic books, something like that. And then um, on Fridays once a month, I'm going to be offering adult classes from five to seven. And then Saturdays are going to be really fun because it will be open workshop time from 10 to 11. Families can come in or if the kids have a play date or kids who just want to come in and not have a structured art time, but they want to make art on their own terms, then that will be that time. I'm also offering a teen art club as well, because I find that when teens go over to middle school and they move on, they don't really have as many art opportunities. And so I have a lot of volunteers from the middle school who keep asking if there's going to be any teen art classes. So yes, there will be twice a week after school. And then I have six art camps going on this summer. One is already sold out. The Mythical Mayhem was very popular. So that one (laughs) sold out, but the rest still have some spots open. You are going to be busy. Very busy. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I'm so excited about it though, that it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't bother me right now. I'm so excited and pumped about all of it. I just want it to get started soon. I'm in this waiting phase right now, just getting everything organized and ready to go at the studio so that when artists come in, it will be stocked and we'll all be ready to go for all the artists to come in and join us. 
Well, we wish you the best of luck in starting this up and spreading the word. Well, thank you so much. And I'm very excited to join the festival. I'm, I've am i already like marked down the things that I want to go do while I'm there. I'm going to bring my sweater because I saw there is a mending your sweater how-to. And I have a couple of sweaters that I need to mend. So I'm really looking forward to checking out all of the the artists and guests that will be there. So thank you for this opportunity. My name is David Levi, and I started a company like two, two and a half years ago called MicroKits, and I make educational electronic kits for kids. So someone who's 10 years old can put together their own theremin circuit, or even at a little bit of a lower age grade, connect the synthesizer I made to like bananas or other conductive objects. So I'm going to be there on Saturday with a little banana keyboard that you can play by touching different bananas to connect to different keys. It's a fun way to get kids uh, interested in conductivity and learning what it means to complete a circuit. I graduated with electronics engineering degree, and then I spent a few years in the toy industry before making my own things. So that's my story. Could you give us some more details of how you got started in this line of work? Because it sounds like you're really meeting a need that you saw. And we'd love to hear more about why micro kits and, and why two years ago, what, what, what made you want to get started? Well, the reason that I make electronic kits for kids is because I was a kid making electronic kits. When I was in middle school, I had a math teacher who taught us a little bit about Morse code and ham radio, but he also had us solder kits together. So that got me started with electronics. And like, even when I was in middle school, I was like, oh yeah, I'll go work on circuit stuff. So that was really empowering to like, know what I could do with my career. And then when I was 14 or 15, I found out about the theremin and I'm like, oh my goodness, I need one of these really quick. It's a musical instrument you play not by touching, but by moving your hands through electric fields. I can play it a little bit over radio. That's a little impromptu performance of what it can sound like. Uh, But there was no easy way to make like a little miniature one. There wasn't a mini one that you could get just to play around with the electric fields. So I'm trying to make it so anyone can build a cool circuit in under an hour, get the confidence, get the interest in working with electronics. And working with kids is so meaningful, especially because they're at a stage where you can really see them grow and learn. Do you have any stories about maybe an experience you had working with a child or presenting this to a child and how you were able to see the gears turning for them? I started this during the pandemic. So for the first few years, I didn't have any like face-to-face contact of the people who are building my kits. I guess it's a good time to build kits during a pandemic, but uh, I've been going to maker fairs. So I was just in Asheville in North Carolina, and there was this one kid who realized that you could complete a circuit, not just by touching the different bananas or anything else conductive, but by having, by like touching, like, I think his parent or something. So he was like, mom, mom, like touch my cheeks. Are my cheeks conductive? And it's like, beep, beep. Every time his mom touches his cheeks, he's like, touch my nose, touch my eyes. And he's like, touch my teeth. So he was like learning that 
like different parts of himself were conductive, but it's so fun just having the banana keyboard out. I play it. Like, I don't explain exactly how it works, but I'm like, I touch here and I touch here. And then like they go and they touch the banana and they're like, wait, it doesn't work. And then their friend's like, oh, you have to touch the grounding banana to complete the circuit. So it's really fun to watch, uh, you know, kids and their friends explain what it means to complete a circuit. Sometimes the parent explains to the kid how it works. Sometimes the kid explains to the parent like, oh, you got the creative path for the circuit to go through. So it's a little circuit board, but it's the size of a cassette and it has little golden buttons along the bottom, kind of like a piano. Uh, so originally this was just going to be a little miniature musical instrument for like cool musicians who wanted to play melodies all on the go. But I realized that if I added just these little holes in the bottom, then like I could include alligator clips, just clips that you could clip on to each of the keys. And then instead of just pressing the keys, you could clip onto them, clip them onto something conductive, and then whatever is connected to it, if it's conductive, becomes the key. So it goes from being just a portable instrument to being like a whole STEM activity and something that like a librarian can pull out at different times and be like, hey, let's make wind chimes this time, or hey, let's make things out of aluminum foil this time. Uh, so yeah, because my theremin kit, it's like a make and take. It's a, you know, you make it in an hour, you get the confidence, you're done. So I wanted my second product to be something that you could make and then put it away and then bring it out. It sounds like it's a musical instrument that you can use over and over again, and you can make different objects musical. So you can touch different things and they make a note. Yeah. So when you touch one of these touchpads, you're making a connection from one side of the touchpad to the other just with your finger. So it just travels a short distance through your finger, but that electrical path can be a lot bigger where if you touch something that's grounded and then the electricity can go through you and then through the banana and then through the alligator clip and then back to the instrument. So you can create your own circuit paths to activate the different notes. And then on the backside, it's a circuit board. So on the backside, you can just see the electronics I spent like a year designing the analog electronics to make it all work without having to like plug it into a computer or all that kind of distracting stuff. And I think it goes right into um, kind of our last wrap up question here is how can our listeners get involved or benefit from uh, your kits even after the how-to festival is over? Uh, yeah. So I have a website called microkits.net. So micro kits with an S at the end, then .net. Uh, .com was taken, unfortunately. You can go, you can see images of what I'm actually talking about. Uh, I have a nice picture of a banana keyboard up on my website. Uh, there's that. And then, yeah, I'm definitely interested in talking to local teachers. It'd be great to uh, you know, get this in the hands of more kids and figure out more of the curriculum of what I've made and how it can apply. My name is Adine Kelly, and I am involved with the Book Arts Program at the Center for the Book at Virginia Humanities. And the center does two things. It does the Virginia Book Festival, and it does the Book Arts Program. 
And the Book Arts program is going to be taking part of the, in the How-To Festival. Uh, it's the Book Arts program deals with printing, traditional old-fashioned printing, and it deals with bookbinding and combining the arts of both. And it's the printing side of things that's going to be demonstrated. Some of our members will be at the How-To Festival and they'll actually be printing. And so you can see how it works. Um, a press that sits on top of the table, a small press, will create images on paper and people will get to take them away. Wow, that's awesome. Very cool. Yeah, I'm really excited. Everyone, they've you guys have been to the festival before and everyone yes. definitely loves stopping um, by your table to see everything in action. So I know people are looking forward to it again this year. We're very interested to know how you got started with the bookbinding or with your involvement with the center. So yeah, if you would just wouldn't mind telling us about how you got into this. Well, I have been fascinated with books all my life, not only reading them. I'm quite a bookworm. I was one of those children who always had my nose in a book. But I was also fascinated with the structure of the book. When you hold it in your hands, turning pages, how easy it is to find what you want. Uh, and I heard about people who could bind books. And I heard about people who could take old books apart and put them back together. Now, I know that there are librarians who specialize in doing that for damaged books, but there are also people who will rebind books in very artistic ways. And I had heard that there were places that offered classes in bookbinding uh, in other parts of the country. And so I checked around here. It took me a little while to, to find it. At that point, you couldn't do a Google search and just turn it up. There wasn't any online presence years and years ago. So I began to take classes there in bookbinding. And eventually, I taught classes. Do you have like one really great story about maybe people that visited the designer for the book, people who visited, who you worked with, or something that you've, you know, bound a really great story that you'd love to share with our listeners about your experience there? I guess the thing I would tell the most is, is more than just one story. It's when I used to teach, I taught classes on Saturday mornings for four hours. And it was the most wonderful feeling to be part of a group with a special interest. And we were, I mean, I was teaching, but of course, I always learned right along with everyone else. I think that happens in many things we all get involved in. And people's different personalities, watching people's artistic talents, and the good humor that people had in those classes, because we would always make mistakes sometimes. I would make mistakes as, as the instructor and have to back up and say, okay, if this happens to you, this is uh, how you get out of it or how you solve the problem. So I guess I especially like the camaraderie. And we love visitors and we love showing people around and I think people will get a feeling of how we're all dedicated to this and how much we enjoy 
it and how much satisfaction we get out of it. This really reminds me of how a lot of libraries have knitting circles that come meet or EJ and I went to the Louisa County Library last year to visit the Bring Your Own Craft Club, which again, is a lot of fiber arts and the atmosphere that you're describing, the spirit of the of the people getting together and doing it sounds very similar, but yet yours is book arts. And so it, it, it's neat. Mm. You all can have that same spirit. It's great to hear that people can visit. And that's, that's yes. actually our last question is how people can get involved if they're not already involved or they don't feel like maybe they had no idea this existed, but they it sparked an interest in them is how might people get involved with book arts after the how-to festival? (laughs) We will have some literature at the how-to festival for people who are interested in finding out a little more. We love visitors. Now, it's better to get in touch with us, and it needs to be done by email, and there's there's a place for contact on on our website. Um, we're not open all hours of the day, um, and we're only open one evening. Um, there's an open studio on Wednesday evenings where people who are members or not members are just people who are interested, drop by and bring their work. Um, and anyone there would be, would just love to show a visitor around. We teach classes from introductory, you know, one-day classes all the way through four- and five-day intensive classes where you can immerse yourself on a long weekend and um, be proficient by the end of it. You can bind a book, a regular special book, like on your library shelves. You can manage that at the end of the fourth day and take it home with you, for example. And you can print from the very first day. Wow, that sounds so incredible. That sounds really good. Exciting. I didn't I didn't realize that you could have it, you could learn the skills that quickly either. So that's really oh, awesome. Yes. Be done in a four day. Can I also ask you, I have a curiosity, when people are binding their own books, what sort of content do you see inside the books is it like an artist who has who maybe wants to bind up artwork that they've made or do you think it's like a writer like a like books of poetry I mean I could see you know I know we, we've recently discovered that EJ is a poet like if she has typed out her poems could she bind them up into a book or what kinds of books you could you could learn how to do that typing you could link up with a printer and come up together with a way to print a few of your poems and bind them, like, and bind 10 of them, say, or if it's real simple, bind 20 of them or whatever you had the stamina for. That would be a pretty big project. What a lot of people do is book artists um it's a that's a big loose term for people who work with book structures but some people are um fascinated with in a sense deconstructing a book and thinking about its components so how do you take a huge sheet of paper and fold it in a particular way that makes a book shaped like a triangle 
that has art and calligraphy all the way through it, for example? Or how do you take an existing book and cut and fold the pages to make images that are on the inside, for example? I know that's hard to visualize, but there are all of these very talented people who are trying to explore the structure of books um, to convey conceptions and beauty. It's almost like, what is it called when you have like a beveled edge on the pages? Some books, they are not scalloped, but some books are printed. In the oh, yes. Rough edge. Oh, it's yeah. like that only times a million, you know. Times like, a million. Yes, yeah. it is. Like that's an artistic choice that maybe says something about the inside of the book, what you're going to read, because it has that kind of feathery mm-hmm. edge on the mm-hmm. page. So again, listeners, make sure that you come to visit the center of the book um, table so you can see everything in person and then give them a visit afterwards as well. Absolutely. We'd love to see you at either place or both. My name is Michaela Deacon. I am a local Charlottesvillian. I've been here uh, my whole life. I am a practitioner of tea, both in the... um, Japanese tea ceremony or chado or senki tradition of tea. And I've worked at the Twisted Branch Tea Bazaar since 2011, so over 10 years now. So I'm very much a tea enthusiastic and very much enjoy sharing it with others because I really believe that it is a wonderful source of community and connection that we can have with others and also with nature. I am hoping to bring to the event sort of different ways to steep teas or different ways that people might come in contact with tea. I'm going to be bringing an herbal tea or a tisane. That's something that I know a lot of people really enjoy drinking because they're uh, oftentimes non-caffeinated and they often have many medicinal benefits to them. So I'm going to show some tricks for steeping herbals in addition to um, a black tea and an oolong. So different teas proper, as I sometimes call them, Camellia sinensis, that uh, species, um, how to steep those teas into delicious fruits. And then I'm also going to be bringing matcha, which I know a lot of people are very interested. It's kind of a, a new uh, hip thing. So I wanted to bring some knowledge on like the care and keeping of matcha, because um, that's actually something. It's 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 a little more of a princess of teas than we might like to think of it. It needs a lot more care. That's really great. I love that description of matcha tea. (laughs) I think that fits perfectly. So we're curious, how did you get started at the Tea Bazaar? You've been there a long time and you obviously have a wealth of knowledge and love of tea. So how did you get started? I got started there through my love of chado or the Japanese tea ceremony. I was introduced to chado at um, a pottery studio. Her name is True Bennett. She had just fired her kiln and she was having a show there and she was having tea done in the back, Japanese tea ceremony. And I, as a 13 year old, just immediately fell in love with it and the ritual and just how calming it was. I didn't fall in love with matcha right away because it was so bitter and astringent. And it was basically, if, if you could think of the color green being a flavor, it was it was matcha. But I really fell in love with the ritual of it. And being a teenager and not 
being able to drive at the time and not having a vehicle, I couldn't go out to uh, Batesville for the lessons that they were having. I was trying to find a space in town. And one of my teachers worked at the Tea Bazaar, Saw T. Walker. And she was like, oh, we have tatami mats there so we can practice tea there. So I was introduced to Tea Bazaar at a young age, going there in the mornings before they opened and doing tea ceremony. And I got to know the staff there and got to learn a lot more about tea through interacting with them there, which was great. Do you have one really great story about a tea ceremony or a patron at the Tea Bazaar that you'd love to share with our listeners? Oh, man, we have so many amazing patrons. Um, I, yeah, they're all so great and they all come for different reasons and they have different teas that they love. I would say one of my favorite characters, he's been coming to the Tea Bazaar since Mateus Frankovich was pushing his red cart around on the downtown mall selling teas and he always comes in. He's an OG. So he always comes in and he loves to brew Japanese greens with us. And we really just enjoyed. He'll just bring in like his little bag of really nice gyokuro that he's like, here, we should steep some of this and we'll just steep it and just enjoy drinking it and um, just get kind of rowdy and all caffeinated. He's always really wonderful because of tea. And because of its comparison to the wine world, I've gotten to know a lot of the Psalms in the area and they've always been really interested in tea. So um, we'll sometimes exchange like tasting notes and like, oh, what about, you know, what's the terroir of this tea or that wine? And there was one night, it was like after we closed and one of the Psalms from Fleury came by with a lineup of wines and I had a lineup of tea. I had a 1985 uh, Baojong Oolong, and she brought a 1985 Bordeaux wine, and we like tasted them together. And it was a it was a wild night because we got uh, we really enjoyed the wine and we really enjoyed the tea, <laughs> and it was really, really interesting combination to have them side by side. But um, yeah, there's just people really coming too. The tea bazaar was such a love and a curiosity, and it's been so enjoyable to to experience that. And it's always fun to have people cozy up to the bar. And if you sit at the bar, you know, chances are we're going to slip you something. Be like, here, try this weird weird tea. I really enjoy how much people can come and enjoy the space and just relax. Yeah, yeah, I really love it. The tea bazaar. I'm a new I'm a new person there. I've only been there a few times, but I went yesterday and I got some like delicious black tea. Was great, but I did sit at the bar, and I just so much crosstalk between all the you know all the workers. The do you call yourselves Mm -hmm. like baristas? Is that what you guys call yourself, or do you have a different name for tea people? Oh my goodness, so many names. Um, Well, there's like tea monkeys were tea <laughs> that's an old one that's like old school tea bazaar um they would call themselves like tea monkeys tea steepers um i consider myself a cha jin that's more specific to japanese tea ceremony that's more of like following away but it literally just means tea person but yeah the tea bazaar we're all really cross-trained like there's the people that do the kitchen side and then there's people that are more focused on steeping teas, but everybody gets cross-trained. and We all know how to do each other's job, which makes it very enjoyable. We have a lot of herbalists that are there, like a lot of amazing herbalists. So they really know their stuff. And 
we have, if you don't know anything about tea when you come there, as long as you just have a love for it, you can learn anything. So. Yeah, you can definitely tell that there is a love for tea there. I mean, they, <laughs> they, I asked what would be best and they gave me a ton of recommendations and mm -hmm. told me how long it would take to steep and all this. And I just, mm -hmm. I loved all the information. So I think that whole crew up there is extremely knowledgeable and just a wonderful, just a really awesome. kind and welcoming group too. I always feel welcome there. So I'm really awesome. glad, I'm really glad that it exists in the community. So how can our listeners meet with you or talk to you more about tea after yeah. the how-to festival is over well you can always stop by tea bazaar and we're always happy to answer any questions you have about tea yeah just come by try something new and uh, the tea bazaar the last saturday of the month they have a tea club so we usually post about that but feel free to like contact us about hey what can i do to get into the tea club we usually find really interesting more exotic teas that maybe we might not always have on the shelf that they gather and we steep it together and talk through it. And that's a lot of fun. And yeah, I just want to say a shout out though to Gwendolyn Hall, the owner of Tea Bazaar. So that welcoming atmosphere that you get there, so much of that is her, like, cause she's so much of a spirit behind the Tea Bazaar and just really being, she really puts a lot of value in having a communal space for people and creating a wel welcoming space. So She's really done so much to foster that. And she's an amazing lady to work for. That's why I've worked for her for so long, because <laughs> she's awesome. Thank you, listeners, for being a part of this podcast community. We're so happy to have you joining in with us. We hope you'll also join us in taking a moment to thank the friends of the library who generously support this endeavor. If you'd like to learn more or join the friends, you can head to their website at jmrlfriends.org. That's all for us today. We'll be back in two weeks with our next very exciting trivia episode. Don't forget, you can get involved with us on social media or by emailing at podcast at jmrl.org. Thanks for tuning in. We're glad to be on the same page. Thank you.